For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord Jesus, after his own death and his own resurrection, ascended into heaven, and there is enthroned with the Father and the Holy Spirit. One might ask, what's the big deal? Wasn't he always enthroned there? And the answer is yes, and the answer is no. He was indeed enthroned there with his father, just until the father said, it's time, my beloved son, to go and have compassion. And he sent forth his son, who became man, suffered as man, died as man, rose as man, and ascended and was seated in heaven as man. That's the change. The book we call Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means unveiling. John isn't telling a story or reciting poetry. He's rending the veil between the heavens and the earth so that we can peer with our ears, with the eyes of faith enlightened by what we hear, and see reality. See that Christ, true God and true man, is enthroned in heaven, and there he reigns. That puts all our fears, all the geopolitical turmoil in context. Jesus isn't in the heavens wringing his hands in fear. He isn't checking into Fox and CNN to see what's happening, wondering what his next move will be. He reigns on high. He reigns supreme. And not only does he reign, but there in heaven he is worshipped. Not only is the throne that of the eternal and everlasting king, but it is the throne around which gather all the great multitude of saints from every tribe and race and language and people. And they all say salvation is with our God and with his Son. And around that throne are also all of the angels. Can you picture them? Can you imagine what they look like? Not the chubby Christmas angels, you might say, hey, little chubby guy, blow your horn. That's not the biblical angels. The biblical angels, when encountered, immediately say, do not be afraid. They have eyes of flame, wings of snow. There's great diversity amongst the hierarchy of angels, and they are just as real as Jesus, and they are gathered around his throne just as he sits upon it. With them are the 24 elders, the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New, and then the four living creatures, beings of incredible description, which we simply don't have time to go into today. It is the divine service of heaven and the heavenly liturgy where all who have died in the faith now go and attend. And we today join in that cosmic 
liturgy that is always going on in heaven. Jesus is, as St. Peter tells us, the shepherd and bishop of our souls. He is the pastor of heaven and the pastor of earth. Our worship, what we do, reflects these realities. Why worship reverently? Because heaven is reverent in its worship. Why worship in awe and splendor with beautiful adornments? Because that's the heavenly reality as well. Why have chanting? Because heaven does. Why have incense? Because heaven does. Why have candles? Because heaven does. And at the heart and center of heaven, at the heart and center of our worship here on earth, is Jesus, the pastor and bishop of our souls, the lamb who shepherds his people. Indeed, he wins that right to shepherd us by being the lamb who bears not only the sins of the world generically, but the specific sins that you committed this very morning, the specific sins that you committed this past week, sins that you committed, good things that you omitted, thoughts, words, and deeds misaligned with the holiness and goodness of God. He sent his son to be the lamb to bear your sin and take it away forever. And that is what he has done. That is why in heaven the only human beings that are there save our Lord Jesus Christ himself are sinners. Those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And now this lamb is risen from the cross, risen from the dead, and the Lamb lives to shepherd us. Our worship then is all about Jesus from beginning to end. That's why we have the processional crucifix. We all turn and set our eyes on Jesus as he is raised up as the crucified one. And the service will conclude with that very reality. We will process out that everything may be begun and ended with our eyes on Jesus. Here our good shepherd comes and he serves us. That's where we get the language of divine service. We're not saying that evangelical services are okay, the Roman Catholic services are pretty good, but ours are divine. That's not what we're saying when we say that we have the divine service. We are saying what the scriptures say. The divine one comes to serve us. Where two or three are gathered in my name, our Lord says, there I am. Here he is. To do what? To be served by us? No, he says, I came not to be served but to serve. The divine one here serves us. And just as the early church worship recorded in Acts consisted of the fellowship and doctrine of the apostles, the prayers and the breaking of the bread, 
so too our service consists of the word of the apostles, the doctrine and fellowship of the apostles in the service of the word, the prayers and the service of the sacrament, the breaking of the bread that is the body of the Lamb of God given for you. 2,000 years of unbroken Christian tradition. All eyes, all hearts and minds set on Jesus our Savior. For we have drawn near to him to be served by him, to hear his word, be convicted of our sins, and be absolved of them, be instructed, be encouraged, be comforted, to offer our prayers interceding as royal priests for the whole world, and to be invited to his table to share in that most intimate communion with him, to receive his body in our bodies, to receive his blood that truly cleanses us, present tense and in reality, from our sins as we're reconciled and restored to fellowship with the Father. Our Lord Jesus is the pastor, the good shepherd, who says, I know my own, and my own know me. There are countless scriptures to this effect. He keeps your tears in a bottle, as if collecting them. He numbers the hairs on your head, even if that number is shrinking day by day. If even a sparrow does not fall apart from the knowledge of the Father, how much more precious in his sight is the death of his saints. Our good shepherd is the one who blesses us, who walks with us in affliction, in suffering, and in sorrow. He himself is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is conforming us into his own image, the image of the crucified and risen. And when death comes and takes those whom we love, he is there to comfort us and say, you think because they've died, I'm any less their shepherd? No, he shepherds them into those still and quiet waters of our heavenly home. There he remains their shepherd, and God wipes away every tear from their eye, even as he does for us here below. Jesus is the one who blesses that which the world curses. Jesus blesses not the rich and the full, no, these he sends away empty. He blesses the poor in spirit. Those of us who know we have nothing, everything we have is a gift from God, our redemption, our faith included. He blesses not the pathologically happy, hashtag blessed. He blesses those who mourn. And he promises that they will be comforted. He blesses not the proud and the mighty, but the meek. He doesn't mean doormats. He means those who humble themselves before the Lord and walk humbly before him as their God. He blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because that is precisely what his son feeds us with 
and the promises that in him we will be satisfied. He blesses the merciful, promises that they shall receive mercy. He blesses the pure in heart. Even after he purifies our hearts, he blesses us and promises us that we shall see God. And even more strangely still, he blesses those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. When you say what is righteous, when you do what is righteous, don't be surprised when no one celebrates you. Don't be surprised when you get written up at work. Don't be surprised when family members get their feelings hurt and are cold to you. Don't be surprised when you lose friends. If Jesus couldn't say things so winsomely as to avoid persecution, how are we, his servants, to think we're capable of this? No, rather, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus goes on to say in the final beatitude, blessed are you. Not when men praise you and give you rewards, but rather when men revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely for the sake of Christ. Rejoice then, Jesus says. Rejoice in these sufferings. Rejoice in the hatred of the world. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. So they did to the prophets who came before you. The Beatitudes, we call these blessings. And the greatest of all beatitudes, the greatest of all blessings, is largely lost to our culture. We conceive of heaven as a kind of paradise, a kind of place where all of creation is set right. And indeed, that's true. It will be manifestly true in the new heavens and the new earth. But that's not the heart of the paradise that awaits. We think of heaven as a reunion with those whom we love. And that's true. What a blessed and joyful reunion it will be. But that also is not the essence of the paradise of heaven. The true blessedness and beatitude of heaven is the beatific vision. That's what John references in our epistle lesson. What Jesus says of the pure in heart that they shall see God. And what John says, we shall see him as he is. That is the essence of paradise. That is what each and every one of you was made for. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To contemplate the awesome and incomprehensible nature of the Holy Trinity, to hear their discourse, to feel the warmth and the light and the joy and the overflow of wisdom 
and to see that all things have God as their source. And those angels and archangels, the whole company of heaven, those fearful angels and all the creatures that the Bible describes gathered around the throne are illumined by this very same beatific vision to behold the face of the one true God. In his name, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.